Well, again, for those listening on uh, the internet, I apologize for my voice uh, as we head into the, it was the warm and cold, warm and cold that finally got me, got to the old voice box and has kept me hoarse all week. And of course, this is the week that I am asked to pray publicly at the, uh, at the old town park for the little league service. And I'm <laughs> grumbling away, growling away. Uh, so is it, uh, so it happens. But anyway, so I apologize for the poor sound today. Well, today we come to our conclusion of uh, Isaiah 53. We wrap up our final little bit, the last stanza of this song, this hymn of the servant, uh, one of the hymns, the servant songs, as they're called in Isaiah. And there's so much rich theology in this song, as we have uh, just begun to scratch the surface of and to expose And we come to, again, just another stage of it here in verses 10 through 12 with a very, uh, uh, a phrase, let's say, that, that can cause some head scratching when we first read it because it says in verse 10, and yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. What a, what a challenging thing to say uh, in the text. How do we handle that? Uh, I've entitled this sermon, The Pleasure of the Lord, because we're told here in verse 10, it pleased the Lord to bruise him, and then later in that same verse, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. So twice in one verse, we have this business about the pleasure of God, what what pleases him. And the first thing we're told is that God was pleased to crush his son, um, to, to bruise him. And then somehow that this pleasing will of God will at the same time prosper in the hand of the crushed, bruised son. Um, <clears throat> I had students ask me this week with my New Testament class where we've been spending time on the passion of Christ as we approach Holy Week. And we got to talking about Jesus' prayer in the garden when he says, Father, if there be any other way, let this cup pass from me. Because we were we were discussing what is this cup that that Jesus is talking about. He he had earlier told James and John when they shimmied up beside him to say, Hey, can we sit at your right and left hand when you come you know, to your throne? And Jesus mysteriously says to them, you know, in 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 kind of clouded language, they didn't quite know what he's talking about. Are you able to be baptized with the baptism I'm going to be baptized with? Can you drink the cup that I'm about to drink? And of course they said, well, yeah, sure. Uh, sure, sure we can. Because they had no idea, uh, of course, what Jesus was talking about. But that that provoked this discussion among my students on, okay, what was this cup that he was going to drink? And, and we thought about that. Well, that then provoked the question, well, was there any other way? You know, what was there? One of the students asked me that. Was there any other way um, to deal with this? And clearly not, because Jesus says, Father, if there's any other way. I mean, the son, when the son asks things of the father, the father doesn't say, no, I don't want to give you what you want. Uh, the father is pleased and delighted. In fact, uh, in, that, um, in a passage just a little bit earlier in, in, uh, in John 11, um, when, when Jesus comes and heals Lazarus, You know, Mary and Martha come out to him and they say, we know, we know that whatever you ask of the Father, he gives you. Um, So we know you can do something about this. 
Uh, so, so there was this sense that the father is pleased to answer his son. The son now sits at the right hand of the father and makes intercession for us. We even have that within our text here today, that the son is praying for us. And what the son asks of the father, the father is pleased to give him. And here in the Garden of Gethsemane, the son asks his father, Father, is there any other way? And the father says, well, we don't hear the answer, but we know the answer because uh, he, he, of course, has to drink the cup and go to the cross and endure this. Now, one of the, one of the, and I think we all get that, but one of the danger, not dangers, I guess one of the little pitfalls that we can anticipate in thinking about that scenario is, and, is, and we want to be careful um, of imposing emotions and facial expressions uh, and body language onto the father and the son as they're having this conversation in prayer. But nonetheless, we can, we can almost feel as if the son sweating drops of blood in the garden is saying to the father, Father, is there any other way? And the father going, you know, just wringing his hands, going, no. Unfortunately not. Unfortunately, this is the only way to get this done. And the son saying, okay, okay, father, um, you know, not my will, but your will be done then. You know, then fine, we have to do it this way. And, and I mean, he's sweating drops of blood and the father's wiping his brow and, and they're both, you know, kind of wringing their hands and saying, okay, this is, I guess this is the only way it can be done. And a, and a passage like this pushes back against that. That it pleased the father to bruise him. Now, he has put him to grief, we're told. He has put him to grief. It's not the circumstances that have put him to grief. It's not Satan that has put him to grief. He, the Father, has put him to grief. So the first thing this text teaches us, and the first lesson that this text gives to us, the first thing this text forces us to wrestle with is the sovereign will of God. That history is not cruising along on its own and God is reacting to it and responding to it. But that the story that we are in and the story that we are celebrating, whether it's in Lent or coming up to Holy Week, that we're about to celebrate is a story that is according to his good and eternal and sovereign purposes. This goes down because it pleased God that it goes down. Jesus makes the point to Pontius Pilate, you don't take my life. No one takes my life. I lay it down of my own accord. I do this because I want to do this. This is going down because it pleased my father and it pleases me. Jesus has given himself over willingly. It pleases the son to do the will of his father. It pleases the son to do what pleases the father. My food and my drink, Jesus said, is to do the will of my father. And we do this of our own accord. The story of the scriptures, the story of history, the story of Holy Week, the passion of Christ, is something that happens by the sovereign will and good pleasure of God the triune God. In fact, in Ephesians 1, you'll remember that language is there in Ephesians 1 uh, as well uh, the, when, when speaking of Jesus, just 
hitting me now. That language of uh, of the pleasure of God. He works all things out. This is in um, um, in verse eleven. In him we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things out according to the pleasure or counsel of his will. So the Father and the Son and the Spirit working all things out according to their good pleasure. So this text brings us back to and reminds us of the sovereignty of our God. And then we get this strange little injection in in the verse when it slips into the second person. The the text that we're looking at here in verses 10 through 12, there are all kinds of complicating little textual things, complicated little punctuation issues, complicated little grammatical issues. It's a challenging text because who is the you that's being spoken about here? There's been no you in this text. This text has been in third person and in first person plural. We, our, you know, he, he's done this to him. He bore our transgressions. So it's been, it's been about what God has done through the suffering servant and the, 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 uh, the, the prophet standing with us and saying he bore our iniquities. And then all of a sudden he jumps to second person. And adds a little wrinkle and a little complication. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And I think the idea here, the you, and of course, reading commentaries and thinking through it, that the you here is directed toward us. That here, everything that's been talked about here is now turned toward us and says, and now you must take this and do with it what it was intended to do. Namely, this is to be your sin offering. This was not something just being done over here on a stage between the father and the son, not between God and his suffering servant, No, you must make him a sin offering. You must make him your offering before the Lord. That's what this was for. He bore your offense. He bore your iniquities. And he is the very thing that you are to take and to offer up to him. Because then he immediately turns around and speaks about God and the son, the suffering servant again in the third person. So again, so we take two things here. First, the sovereignty of God in this. This pleased him. This was his good pleasure to do this. Think about that. God was pleased to do this for you so that you might have an offering to bring before him, so that you might have a way back in to the glorious presence of God. He was pleased to do that for you. At, at the cost that it would be for him. And, and it's hard to talk about, the, our, our language gets muddy here because what is it? What, what cost is there to God? But we know that his son sweat drops of blood. While it pleased the father to bruise him, at the same time, 
it brings no delight and joy to crush his own son with the overwhelming wrath of judgment that you and I deserve. Yet on another level, he was pleased to do it for us. It was fitting. The book of Hebrews says in just shocking, humbling words, it was fitting that he would do this. Fitting? That the Son of God would bear our flesh and take on our sin and, and do all this for us so that he might destroy the one who holds us in slavery to the power of the fear of death? It was fitting? It pleased him. It was appropriate. According to his very nature and his very heart, he was willing to do it, to give this to you. Now, take it. Take it and offer it up as your, your sin offering. Forget all the other offerings that the Israelites had been doing. This is your sin offering. This is what you are to take up and offer back to the Lord. And when we do, when his people receive him and bring him back to the Father, then we're told the Father seeing the fruit of the labor will be well satisfied. He shall see his seed and prolong his days and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. The reason the son is crushed is so that he might produce this amazing harvest. Remember, Jesus said in John chapter 12, in that, in that, again, <laughs> this mysterious moment with his disciples, mysterious only in that it was just the, the disciples don't know what he's talking about. Now is the time for the Son of Man to be glorified. And as he talks about that, he says, I tell you the truth. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it bears no fruit. But if it falls into the earth and dies, it bears much fruit. That is to say, this is what I'm doing. I am the grain of seed that is going to literally go into the earth. Not just so that we can do this dramatic display and I can go into the earth, but the, so I can go into the earth and come out with a rich harvest. He is, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, the first fruit of a whole harvest. And here in this text, we're told the same thing. Look, it pleased the father to crush him so that he could be a sin offering so that that grain of wheat having been crushed and put into the ground might bring many sons to glory that the father would see the his seed and then prolong his days and now the pleasure of the lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. Even Jesus, the crushed seed, will see the labor, the fruits, if you will, of his labor, and he will be satisfied. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. Now here again, just to let you in on it, another punctuation, grammatical thing. Where does by his knowledge go? You see that the new King James puts by his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many. Personally, I do not think that is correct. I think by my knowledge actually goes up with the phrase before it. He shall see the labor of his hand and be satisfied by his knowledge. And then period, new sentence. My righteous servant will justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. That the Father seeing 
the fruit of his labor. By that knowledge, he is well satisfied. And now, having seen that, we turn back again to what the fruit of this labor looks like. Yes, it's a sin offering, but now he dives down a little bit deeper in it. And we get what, in my opinion, is a logic sandwich. Okay, we get this little logic sandwich that Isaiah gives to us here. We don't usually talk like this, but but when I read it here, you'll see it, that Isaiah is giving us a little logic sandwich in such that he's intensifying the very point he's wanting to make. And this point that he's about to make right here is the point of Philippians 2, which was our word of exhortation today. Though he was equal with God, he nonetheless emptied himself, becoming the form of a bondservant, becoming obedient to the point of death, death on the cross. Therefore, God highly exalted him and gave him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And if you can, if you can picture Philippians 2 in your head, it would look like this. It would look like a V, one of descent and then ascent. That Jesus, the glorious one, who did not need to do this in and of himself, but did it because he and the Father were pleased to do it, carves out the pathway to glory even for us. And it is one of humiliation and descent and then pivoting unto glory and ascent. But this pattern of descent and ascent becomes the only valid pattern for us in life. If you want glory, you must die. If you want the harvest, the seed must go in the ground. If you want to save your life, you must lose it. This is what Jesus says. Have this mind in you, Paul says in Philippians 2, which though he had glory, he did not cling to it, but rather emptied himself of it. Not of his attributes, but emptied himself of his glory of his exalted status. He was willing to give away his status and become a creature. And not just a creature, but a servant, Isaiah 53, a bondservant, an obedient bondservant, obedient to the worst level, the lowest levels, obedient even to death, the humiliating death of the cross pivot at the cross it drives itself down to the cross and there on the cross we know we have this amazing it's like it's like when the waters at the ocean are kind of you know like they're 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 coming in and going out and they kind of crossing you know the waves coming in and the waves going out are kind of crossing in there together in that in that moment that's kind of what you get at the death of Christ at the cross it's like it's humiliation and yet exaltation because he's being crowned and he's got the placard above his head, king of the Jews. And though they're mocking, nonetheless, they're declaring him the king of the Jews and robing him in purple and all these kinds of things. You get these weird little hints of exaltation. There's a pivot. It's The humiliation has reached its deepest and darkest, and yet it's pivoting onto glory. And it then moves to glory. Therefore, we're told, because of that, because Jesus took that path, therefore, God highly exalted him. And here we're told, right, he was, he was, he was buried with the rich. 
and his days are prolonged. And the harvest comes forth and Jesus is raised from the dead and then ascends unto glory and pours out gifts on his church and will come again to judge the world. So this descent, obedient descent and humiliating descent is the only way unto true glory. And of course, Jesus throughout his whole ministry is teaching the disciples this, but they just don't get it. But here again, we have this amazing kind of logic sandwich going on in, in our text. My righteous servant will justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Descent. He will, be, this is how he's going to justify them. He will bear their iniquities. And now just let your mind go back into this song of Isaiah 53 and think about everything that means. That means he's going to be crushed. That means he's going to be bruised. It means he's going to have stripes. It means he's going to be stricken, smitten, and afflicted. It means, you know, just think of everything it means for him to bear our iniquities. Think about that descent of Isaiah 53. This is how he's going to justify many. He's going to take their dirty robes. He's going to take all their sin and wear it on himself. And then verse 12, and think about Philippians 2 here. Therefore, therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great. Jesus is going to be exalted. And notice the exaltation is not, and then next I will do this. No, no, no. There's a therefore. And a therefore is a logical word. It's a connecting word. It's a word that says, because of something, I'm going to do this. Why is he given a portion with the great? Why shall the spoil of the mighty be divided among, given to him? Well, there's a therefore. You know why Jesus is great? You know why he has a name above every name? You know why he inherits the nations? Because he did that. Because he bore the iniquities of his people. Because he emptied himself, becoming a bondservant, obedient unto death. The humiliating death of the cross. And because he did that, because he did that, not in spite of his doing that, or coincidentally, because he did that, he is exalted. Therefore, I will divide a portion him a portion with the great and he shall divide the spoil to strong. And this is why it's a logic sandwich. Because then we get a because. So it's not, if, if you didn't get the therefore, so he did this, therefore I did that, he throws in a because. Just to, just to tell you one more time. Do you know why he was given this great spoil? Because he poured out his soul unto death. He was numbered with the transgressors. He bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. So a logic sandwich. He bore their iniquities, therefore I exalted him because he bore their iniquities. I want you to see this. The link. The path of God. What pleased, the, what pleased his father was the exaltation of the son unto glory where he would have the inheritance of the nations. But the way that that came, the only way given sin in the world that that could come was through the descent, the humiliating descent of Isaiah 53. This was not a father who just enjoys and delights in the pain of his children. He delights in the exaltation of his son 
and the exaltation of his son came through the pouring out of his heart in bearing the sins of his people, making intercession for them. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Carrying their sorrows. Thought about this, again, going through this with my students in John 11, when Jesus is weeping at the grave of Lazarus. Like, what's he doing there? Why is he weeping when he's about to raise Lazarus from the dead? Well, one thing he's doing is he is literally carrying the sorrows of his people. He has the sorrows of Mary and Martha that he's putting on his shoulders. And not just their sorrows, but our sorrows. Our grief was upon him. He's carrying it. It's this load that's crushing him and that's causing him to sweat drops of blood. That this is the will of the Son and the will of the Father that he might come. And by doing this, by, by literally unburdening us, by literally taking our sorrows, by literally taking our iniquities off of our shoulders individually, and taking them upon himself, he justifies many. Because he takes our grief, he takes our sorrows, he takes our iniquities upon himself, and now having collected them, tells the Father, go for it, deal with them. I've got them all right here, deal with them right now. And bears the judgment that they all deserve, while at the same time, giving to us, putting on our shoulders all of his obedience, all of his righteousness. All the times we flopped and said no, but he said yes and did it and obeyed and saw it through and did not yield to temptation. The times we say yes, he said no. And his faithfulness and his obedience formed this beautiful robe, this white robe that he was able to wear in the presence of the Father that he takes off his shoulders. What a beautiful, light thing on his shoulders. And he takes it off and gives it to us and then takes this big, tumorous burden of sin onto his shoulders off of us. And by so doing, justifies us, makes us righteous and acceptable. And because of that, just to be clear, therefore, because he is highly exalted. And we'll get there. We got next week is Palm Sunday. And then we've got the, the, the darkness, the deep, deep darkness, the, dark, the darkest darkness that there is to go through in two weeks. But that darkness becomes the light of the world. That, that darkness pivots on the therefore we've got the therefore coming that's what we're going to celebrate on holy saturday and and easter sunday is the other side of the therefore but that's what's coming he will be made great the the pleasure of the lord is going to prosper in his hand it's not going to crush him it's going to prosper in his hand and he is going to have the spoil of the strong divided to him the nations that rage that plot against him they will be crushed with a rod of iron and they will all be given to him and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's where this train is going. And Isaiah 53 just causes us to pause and to reflect in this time of Lent as we come into Holy Week, as we remember what our Lord did 
it is good for us to pause there on the descent of Philippians chapter 2 and to remind ourselves that this is the only path to glory. He carved the path. You, you could not have made this path. But he carved it. He's the trailblazer. And he did it. And now he calls us to walk in it. Pick up your cross. Deny yourself and follow me. Not because Jesus is the now. You, now we all kind of do it individually. Jesus showed you how to do it. Now it's your turn to do it. No, no, no. It's not that. He has done it once for all for us. Yet, the only way to glory is to follow him. And the path he carved is this V. We must live a life of self-emptying. We must live a life of pouring ourselves out for one another and for the sake of the world. Have this mind in you, Jesus said, or Paul said, that was also in Christ Jesus. And if you walk that path behind him, following him, it's a path that leads unto glory. You will share with him forevermore the glory that he has achieved. He will be the first fruits of that wonderful harvest and we will be part of it as well. So in this week, I encourage you to keep your eyes fixed on him and to walk behind him in the path that only he could plot. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your sovereign will, which we know while we can't understand what was going on between the persons of the Trinity as Christ is suffering on the cross and what pain even means for you, O oh God. But we know that you took no delight in the crushing of your son in and of itself. And yet at the same time, that this would be the way you chose to demonstrate your love to us. That this would be the way you chose, the story you chose to write that would most clearly manifest your nature to us, your sovereignty to us, your love toward us, your justice toward us, your glory toward us is amazing. We give you thanks for it. It's beyond our comprehension. We're scared even to read the words that this pleased you. And yet you tell us it did, that it was fitting. So, Father, we pray that you would help us now to walk in the light of Christ, to walk in his steps, not to earn anything, but because we love him, we go where he goes and we'll follow where he calls us to go, where he leads. And since he tells us to pick up our cross, deny ourselves, empty ourselves, and to follow him, to lose our lives that we might find it, we pray that you would give us the strength to do it, knowing that our salvation is secure in him, for he has justified many. We give you thanks for that in his name. Amen. Our hymn of response is hymn 197 in the blue hymn.